SBC Media. Hello and welcome to Cinema Reels, the gambling movie podcast where we decide which movies are a pure 21 and which are a double downer of a flick. I'm your host, Jessica Wellman, editor of SBC Americas, joined by my colleagues who may or may not be able to see through things, but at least have slightly above average eyesight. Welcome, media sales director John Cook and multimedia producer James Ross. Guys, I feel very whimsical today because it's it's a raw doll day as we're going to talk about the wonderful story of Henry Shooker. I'm excited to get into a real doll film. Well, I was excited to get into a real doll film because I really liked them when I was growing up. Oh, no. this I can already tell this is going to go poorly. <laughs> you liked him growing up. Let's start with, you know, what? what's your favorite Roald Dahl story? Because there are so many to choose from, and I think we all kind of latch on to certain ones depending on your personality. Yeah. So I had a few. Is yours James and the Giant Peach? Because you no. get to just roll around and live in a big... No. No, because um, I'm, I'm not a big advocate of peaches, to be honest. No, I'm definitely not when they grow. No, it, we're going to be the cliche Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I, I do love that one. Uh, the Witches was good because there was a film, I can't remember what year it was in. 80, 80, 89 or 90, I think. 89. That was one of the uh, films I used to watch a lot growing up. But I'm actually going to go with the BFG due to the 1989 cartoon film, which was one of my childhood films. Oh, the 1989 one was glorious. But yeah. I also thought the most recent one was also beautiful. Oh, I hated the 2016 one. I didn't like it. But I think I had such an affliction to the uh, 1989 one. You can have Mark Rylance read me the phone book and I'll be a happy camper. So him as the BFG was just lovely. All right, John, how about you? All of them. Every single one. Stop being lame. Pick one. No, I grew up in a family with two sisters and they would always read like, was it Mallory Towers or something? Like one of those really girly things. And then my mum and dad would read me things like George's Marvelous Medicine and the Twits and the Fantastic Mr. Fox. And the whole thing about Roald Dahl is he just writes in such a beautifully descriptive way that you automatically immerse yourself in the world that he's trying to draw for you. It's almost like he's painting with words. It's not like he's writing, he's painting with words. And like when you're going through the twits and he's talking about the food that's stuck in their beard and the worms that are coming out of their ears, it's just so glorious beautiful, for a young boy. Beautiful imagery. And then you've got the slyness of the fantastic Mr. Fox as he's trying to get out of his burrow. And then you've got George's marvelous medicine. Do you just have, are you, is this like a, a game? You're trying to name all of them and see if we stop you? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Because I've, I've got to get to Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator because that oh hasn't God. been mentioned. And that is better than the than uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The Great Glass Elevator is brilliant. Did John mention a favourite one? Sorry. No, don't get him started again. <laughs> James and the Giant Peach is the one I least like. Wow. Genuinely, I least like that. I wasn't and, a big fan of that one either, I'll be honest. And not just from a book perspective. I, I actually think it's possibly his worst book because it's not 
as descriptively written as a lot of the others. Um, but on the other side of this wall, I happen to be at my mother's today, bizarrely, uh, on the other side of this wall, because I've got four uh, nieces and nephews, there is literally the whole collection of Roald Dahl children's books um, on a on a bookshelf, which, yeah, I might start rereading them. James's around the world are now hating John Cook. Yeah, well. I mean, I don't, not every Jessica's amazing. Certainly not every like little redhead's amazing. I hated Annie growing up. Anyways, uh, you guys haven't mentioned my favorite. I was an, uh, a somewhat early reader and became very quickly one that read kind of adult books at a child's age that Matilda was... I was like, that's me. This is a book about me. I I made the I took the list of all the classics that she was reading and I went to the library and started checking them out one by one because I wanted to be like Matilda. The part where she gets the superpowers is less interesting to me. I liked it more when it was just a book about a girl who read very quickly. But yeah, Matilda. But I, I don't like either of the films. See, the films was when I was first introduced to Danny DeVito. That's your introduction to Danny DeVito? Some of us get Taxi. Yeah. James gets Matilda. Yeah, and then it was Hercules, the Disney film. Oh, my God. I just played Philip Titis. Uh, okay. I think I think Matilda was the was like the first foray in trying to attract a, a young girl's audience to Roald Dahl's books to a certain extent. Um, and I hate that. I hate that book. I hate the premise of it. Surprise. You hate that a girl you... can be smart and move things with no, her no, mind? No, 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 no. Wow, I hate John. the fact... No, wow. I'm not... Oh, you hate women. Wow. I got it. Wow. Yeah, yeah, okay. I hate... Yeah, of course. I just, I just hate the fact that a child has to live in an abusive family. And, like, I... While I'm extremely excited by the fact that she's super intelligent and is able to outsmart both of her parents, which, frankly, isn't that difficult, um... I just find it difficult and disappointing that that happens. I feel like plenty of Raldal children are in. That's almost like a theme of his is that you put them in kind of downtrodden situations. They're poor. They're abused. Yeah, downtrodden, but she's abused. Okay. Um, has anyone read the wonderful story of Henry Shooker before we dive into the film? I actually have never read this one. I'd never heard of it until the film was mentioned. So, I don't know. You can watch this on Netflix as it was produced by them. I'm sure you can get it in other places, but actually maybe you can't as it's a Netflix exclusive, so you can't. Uh, but there are other there are other places you can watch your films and, and television series. Um, but I don't know if anyone accidentally sort of fell asleep towards the end of this and then it rolled on to the next one of Roald Dahl's. Yeah, it's based on, it, they're all from the same anthology. They're all the same anthology, right? But this is kind of like, I because I always associated Roald Dahl with children's books and this is a lot more of an adult, yeah. adult concept and topic. So I, I didn't even know they existed. Let's put it that way. Okay. Uh, with that, this is your reminder. If you do not want the story of the wonderful story of Henry Sugar spoiled, uh, now is the time to tune out, watch, and catch back in. It is a short film, so you don't need that much time. I think it's like 43 minutes long. Um, so basically an episode of television. Uh, to give you a little bit of background, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar is a short film from auteur Wes Anderson based on the Roald Dahl short story of the same name. 
Henry uses the powers of focus and concentration that come with yoga to beat the casinos at their own game. But the film has us asking, what is worse? A world where you know everything or a world where you have to live with the unknown? John's making a face. He didn't draw that conclusion from it the way I did. Um, You kind of said it's a nice short film that you can watch easily and stuff along those lines. I mean, the only reason I would watch this film and think that it is short is because I do a film podcast, so I had to watch it probably (laughs) 20 times, genuinely. You watch this movie 20 times? I put it on 20 times. Oh, my God. Whether I got to the end of it, no. I probably got to the end of it maybe three times, but it lost my interest. What do you not like about it? I don't like the style of it. I don't don't like the narration. I don't like the speed of the narration. It's all a little bit too fast-paced for me. I would like a little bit more explanation. But it's almost like you're being read the text, which is massively frustrating. Let me backtrack a little, because I think anytime you talk about a Wes Anderson movie, it's probably important to hear where people are at on Wes Anderson because he has a very particular style and a very particular way of doing things. So like, you know, James, what's your thoughts on Wes Anderson? Um, Love and hate relationship with him. I love his use of like set design. Uh, I, and it's kind of shows in this film and also the, um, the Grand Budapest Hotel. I like the filters that he uses on his um, on the cameras as well on the films because it's it's nice and bright and it's attractive and it's just pleasing to look at. But I'm with John when the kind of how the dialogue's produced um, by the characters. It's just I, it's not my style. It sounds so fake a lot of the time and it's just so robotic. And I'm just when you're trying to engage yourself in a story, I'm just like. Oh, give me something, give me some emotion of, a little bit. And it was, certainly this case with um, The Wonderful Life of Henry Sugar, it was it was like an audiobook. And it was it was torturous for me. And I've said it in previous podcasts, I don't like the film being told to me. I like it being shown. And this was, this was kind of like the worst film for me to watch. John, how do you feel about Wes Anderson in general? I think he kind of, and this is, this is interesting because he's part of part of his sort of influences is Woody Allen, but he kind of reminds me of his casting and his work is very similar to the style of Woody Allen, where he'll use the same series of actors over and over again until basically either they're cancelled or they just become unfashionable. So he uses a lot of big big names and big people to pull the crowds because I think I don't like his work. But I don't like Woody Allen's work. I feel like Jess is going to have a different opinion to us. Sir. Yeah, yeah, I totally think Jess is going to have a different opinion. But I can appreciate some of the films that are out there. Uh, I can appreciate The Grand Budapest Hotel. I can appreciate um, some of the other works that he's done. But, yeah, I'm not a huge fan. I just find it a little bit non-immersive. It's kind of a little bit too artsy. Okay, that makes more sense. I think Wes Anderson is probably top three best director working today. I will watch everything he does 
opening weekend. Um, I think he has two flat-out masterpieces in his oeuvre that is Grand Budapest Hotel and the Royal Tenenbaums. There are the occasional ones. Like, I don't like Life Aquatic as much as everyone else. That's not so much my favorite, nor is Darjeeling Limited. But I, unlike you guys, think he is easily the most visually interesting director working today. And I'm kind of shocked that you guys didn't find this visually fascinating because I was in awe of the visuals of this film because it was so economical of just like, how can we keep going and keep this momentum building without cutting and switch from scene to scene? And it almost felt like I didn't I don't know if this was a British thing growing up or if it was just an 80s kind of thing. But during the growing up in the age of like reading Rainbow and stuff, there was so much like storybook theater on TV in the 80s where you were telling stories with limited props and limited sets. And it was like a really elevated version of that experience that I grew up with. That I was just in awe of this. I think I did say that I, I was a big fan of his set design, how he uses his set design. It was just the way... But you said like you could, you could close your eyes and it would be the same thing. And I I just, I don't know what you're watching. I emphatically disagree. Because the the way the dialogue is produced, it's just as an audiobook and it explains the story. So... But if you're watching, it's such a different experience. Because, like, I get it, like, with Molly's game where you said there's a lot of narration. I could close my eyes. I wouldn't miss it. And I get I get that where, like, okay, what you're watching kind of matches what she's saying. But what they're doing while they're talking is so inventive. Like, when he's talking about the blood clot and you have the visual of this x-ray machine coming in and creating this, you know, if you closed your eyes, you would miss all of this. And it was incredible. Wow. You would do, but I just don't think to actually compliment each other because, again, you can take the set design out of it, you can take the imagery out of it, and the story's still the same. You still know what's going on, and at the same time, you take the bit of the dialogue out of it, you probably have the same story explained to you. Right. I get where both of you are coming from, but I disagree with you both entirely. I think artistically it was actually... It, it was quite cool. It was quite interesting, but I think there are better ways to do it it's a little bit too artsy and a little bit too far-fetched and some of the pace in which it was filmed was just too quick like the the dialogue at points i lost it entirely and roll doll is so descriptive in terms of its language that i lost that descriptive nature of it and i thought some of the places where they were running through some dialogue it just didn't make sense so when um i can't remember the dude's name the guy from Slumdog Millionaire. Dev Patel. Dev Patel, thank you. Um, where he was talking about uh, being in a car and so on, he suddenly sits down at a table. It kind of didn't make sense because he sat at a table and then carried on the narration, but he didn't demonstrate that he was in a car, even though it was meant to be he was demonstrating he was in a car. It, But maybe that was more around the direction of the actor as opposed to the way in which it was staged. It felt a little bit like a play as opposed to a film which is kind of a nice thing but then there are things where um where i can't remember who it was again ben kingsley ben kingsley 
Thank you. Where Bing Kingsley has the wrap surrounding his head and then he suddenly walks out and, and drives towards the exit. That was at such a fast pace. I understand why it was at such a fast pace, but it was so quick that it kind of was just, it felt like it was on fast forward all the time. I just need a little bit more time to suck this all in and the pace of the dialogue and the pace in which it was being filmed. And it's what you kind of like, right, in terms of it being <laughs> driven forward. That speed was just a little bit too quick for me. I like to be able to chill and just relax and so on, but I, it's a bit like, well, actually, this is unfair of this because this is so much better than um, Fearing Loving in Las Vegas, but the speed of it was kind of similar to the chaotic nature of speed and lo- um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I just could not get to it. I felt like Fear of Loathing didn't go anywhere and it was very slow. Actual quotation. No, it was, but I'm talking about sort of the speed in terms of uh, the chaoticness of the filming. <laughs> Actual quote from my notes. God, can every movie we watch be paced like this? It is incredible. <laughs> Because you know my complaint is always stuff's too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff's too long. I do hear you. I think Deb Patel and Benedict Cumberbatch in particular do just speak with a very fast cadence in this. And you do have to be kind of paying attention. But there were just so many moments where I was just so impressed with how clever and how economical he was in his storytelling. Like towards the end where Henry Sugar is kind of explaining his different you know, his plan to go around the world where he's just crossing the same room in 14 different get-ups with different accents and stuff. And the, I loved, I think my favorite moment in this where like the restraint worked so well was he wakes up after that first night in the casino and he has all the money and he doesn't care. And he goes out on his, you know, like patio balcony and it's almost it, it's very evocative of a Christmas Carol, right? Where you know um, Scrooge is like looking out and it's Christmas morning and he's being all generous, and he starts kind of just like throwing the money off the balcony, and you never cut away from the balcony, but through audio, you're hearing the absolute chaos that he's creating underneath him, and it's just I'm just so appreciative of using these inventions like this is why it's like the reverse of Scorsese right where Scorsese's like I'm gonna put it in there because I can and we'll make it longer because I want to put it in there these artistic devices whereas Wes Anderson says I'm gonna put this in here to be more economical about my storytelling and that's why I love him so so much but do you think in terms of okay so here's a good one if you like the economical nature of his directing, is he the right director to direct a Roald Dahl series where Roald Dahl is uneconomical with words and massively descriptive in terms of his writing? Do you think he's the right person to do that? Because it's kind of two ends of the spectrum, right? Or actually, I'll let you answer that. I mean, but if you look at this, Granted, I haven't read this story, but given the way we've what we've watched, I would assume not a word of this story has been omitted. Mm. I think he read aloud the entire thing. Yeah, which is then kind of a little bit... That's going down the route of you've got a visual audio book then. I think that's the intent. 
Okay, fair. Again, I don't know if you guys had this. In the 80s, we had stuff like this where it was like a very barren set and over-exaggerated costumes and props and people playing different characters telling fairy tales and acting out books. And it's it's like it's a revisiting of, of what, you know, Shelley Duvall's um, reading theater or whatever it was called was and and elevating it to a new place. Because I think, you know, what I love about Wes Anderson is he's self-referential. He's very referential in a way that I, you know, that's so much better than Tarantino, where he is not just calling, like name checking it and referencing it. He's riffing on it. That's why I love Grand Budapest is just a whole ode to 30s cinema. Yeah. Going off that, I think one of my notes was like the cinematography felt very, and I'm sorry to say this, very kind of old school um, filmmaking and I think another reason why I didn't engage with it is because that's not it's just not my era it's just I, when I watch films from the 50s or the 40s and it's kind of those wide shots and then it's like a, a two shot and there's never really that big distinguish on kind of being a bit more creative with the shots it, it just felt a bit bland to me I mean I I see it have you guys seen Asteroid City? Did you watch that one this summer? No. No, unfortunately not. So I, I will admit Wes Anderson, he gets into like specific things. So for a while it was like tableaus, right? During um, the French dispatch, it was a lot of tableaus. And now he's playing a lot with like proscenium and just the idea of a stage within a stage within a stage within a stage in this nesting that... I think some of this too is that I was seeing what he was doing in Asteroid City in terms of creating and using the filmscape as almost like a theatrical stage. And so I appreciated it too because I've seen the other stuff that, I mean, I, I think kind of the takeaway of this is that if you're a Wes Anderson person, this is right up your alley, but it sounds like neither of you are Wes Anderson people. I'm definitely not a Wes Anderson person, but in my research for this, I always do sort of the the circle of check rotten tomatoes. No one has a bad thing to say about this. Genuinely. So I think James and I are in a very small minority here. You're on a very tiny peach. Yeah, an extremely <laughs> tiny peach. You're on a tiny um, peach pit. I think my um distaste for him, actually, it might not be Wes Anderson himself. It might be my own perceived bias on director's striving to be kind of these auteurs and just unique people. And this probably came from my film study days at university when a lot of students would love a director or say they would love a director for being that unique character to stand out when actually the films might not actually be that good. And whenever I see something like a Wes Anderson film and to a point, what's he called? directed Moulin Rouge, Baz Luhrmann. They are great. Some of them are great films. Be careful. <laughs> I, no, I, I like I like Baz Luhrmann films, but there's also points where you can see he's trying to force that unique Baz Luhrmann style to be that auteur. And Tarantino does the same thing these days. It's why I've gone off a lot of his films recently as well. And I think it's more of a, um, a subconscious bias of myself of having that perceived notion in university. I will say, like, I hate auteur people in general, but I, for me, I, Wes Anderson is 
a little bit different because I do think it just feels like a fundamentally different thing um, than anything I've ever watched. And I just appreciate that he's doing something I've never seen before. I think, yeah, I think Wes Anderson, uh, Baz Luhrmann, Tarantino, each of those three are iconic directors. and I think they are creating their own genre of films with different different aspects of each film within them and i think you're right james sometimes uh maybe the film that they're working on is is not sufficiently strong enough to to be a decent film australia i was gonna say that aka far away downs or whatever they've repurposed yeah, it yeah. into <laughs> as as you have to um add in a load of different different pieces to to make it interesting different cinematic pieces to make it interesting um but I think there's certainly a genre, and I I think, as we have agreed, and we've spent most of the first part of this pod talking about it, James and I don't like Wes Anderson, uh, Jess clearly does. What I want to delve into is more in terms of performance uh, of the actors, which I'm going to be absolutely brutal and say, Benedict Cumberbatch, you should have been fired for this. He should never appear in an, another film. He did not act. He was statuesque and boring. The only thing that was interesting about the scene where you're talking about his walking in in different characters with different ac- accents was the fact he was wearing different clothes. His accents were appalling. His acting was dreadful. There was nothing to it. Oh, God. No one has a worse American accent than Benedict Cumberbatch. Could you not say the exact same thing for every other character in this film? Because yeah, maybe, no, maybe it it's it's obviously um a direction from the director was Anderson. Like they're, they're being told um, to read it like they would read a don't book. Don't think so. Ben Kingsley. Really? Everything that Kingsley does, I think he's amazing. Back Genuinely, I think he's the best actor on the face of the earth. Not every actor can do can do the Wes Anderson style, and I would agree that Benedict Cumberbatch I'm just not I'm not the biggest fan of his, to be honest. Um uh, I, I don't dislike him. I've just never been particularly impressed. And I thought that um, Power of the Dog, he was terrible. But I also just hate his American accent and it throws me so yeah. much. But like like Rafe Fiennes, who is really just at the beginning and the end of this, is kind of the perfect example of someone who can bring a twinkle in his eye and a wryness and depth to what he's saying with Wes Anderson dialogue that I think Benedict Cumberbatch didn't succeed as much with. You know, Dev Patel, I thought, handled the dialogue really well. Um, That he was talking quickly, but infusing it with a lot of emotion and kind of humor and and John shaking his head. I loved Dev Patel, but I thought he was just as bad as Cumberbatch in this. And don't get me wrong, Cumberbatch's accent in this is just as bad as it is and to be entirely honest he epitomizes his marvel character in the sense that he's just genuinely strange um he does not work in this film and his accent his u.s accent does not work in any shape or form i'll defend dev patel here because i feel like his performance i'll agree with jess it worked with the wes anderson style i think the thing that let dev patel down and it's the initial kind of introduction you have with him i don't think the on-screen relationship with richard iowardi worked because richard iowardi is just awkward and weird in everything that he does and i felt richard iowardi is a dreadful actor he should not be an actor at all yeah but 
if you put him against Dev Patel, then that chemistry, which has to be there for their first introduction, it doesn't work, and that might have deterred you thinking a little bit. I think. Um, I'm I'm not sure about that because think about it in this way, right? I kind of felt that this was set maybe forties ish, thirties maybe that kind of era. The medical world at that stage. Doctors, nurses were Mr. and Mrs. and very awkward and very sort of um, professional with each other rather than rather than have a chemistry. So I kind of liked that. It kind of worked for me. But what Richard Iwadi, bless him, he should just be an interesting kind of comedian and a travel guy. That's all he should ever do. He should not be allowed to act because he's just terrible um and he is richard awadi in real life and the fact is he probably the costume he was wearing in that probably was his saturday weekend clothes okay now that john has fired half of the cast quick notes on the gambling um the most jarring thing is that benedict cumberbatch sits on the wrong side of the table uh at blackjack in blackjack you deal clockwise and he was sitting to they said camera left, which is the dealer's right, and he would not be getting the first card off the shoe if he was in that position. So that was the the big thing that stood out to me was like, you're sitting in the wrong place. I double checked. I was like, do Brits do it backwards? And they don't. So um, yeah, he's sitting in the wrong place. Uh, that's kind of the gambling fact check. I assume we would all back a guy who can literally see through cards, right? Yeah. All right, now, I mean, I think it's going to be anticlimactic, but is this movie better or worse than Rain Man? And I'm going to tell you right now, I think it is. Okay. Um, no, I don't think it is. I know that I'm in the minority on this, but I just, this was delightful. I, I leave Wes Anderson just going like, oh, wow, how come no one's thought of this before? So I was won over. But I know I'm gonna. I'm about to get voted down. So let's wrap it up. My dearest panel members and audience, if this is better than Rain Man, I will not appear on the next pod. Oh, in that case, this is this is better than Rain Man. It's better than Rain Man. <laughs> um, I thought it was a brave attempt at an experiment in a like narration and storytelling. Is it better than Rain Man? No, I can't say it is. Um, well, actually, from from a gambling point of view, then, Jess, is this better than Rayman? How do you mean? Well, we're a gambling podcast. I mean, here's what I'll say. I, I think this gets at kind of the heart of gambling better than anything we've ever watched, which is you spend all this time wanting to master it and wanting to, like, control it and get better at it. But then once you eliminate the chance, what does it even mean anymore? Uh, which you can extrapolate to life, but I was like, you know, that in a not like I play poker and I want to get better and I want to know everything that happens. But if you actually gave me the ability to know everything, the game wouldn't be any fun anymore. Uh, and so what I love about this is that it does kind of get into what makes gambling fun. You've. Oh, my God. I've just changed your mind. And John's not going to be on the next podcast. No, I, I, I never. I never thought of it that way, and you, you kind of have swayed me a little bit here. And it was beautifully put. So, yes, I will go better than Rain Man. You cannot change your mind to go better than Rain Man. 
This is not John. You purely, change your mind about seven times. This is in a podcast. not purely a gambling pod. It's a film pod as well. This is not better than Rayman. Absolutely We're gambling not. at its core. Ladies and gentlemen, I hand in my resignation. Okay, well, I guess we're just giving this quiz to James. Yes, and this is where it all comes together. I'll do the quiz. If it's if it's got any of the Roald Dahl children stuff in it, I'm hands down doing the quiz. There is a Roald Dahl question. Get in. I'll happily let you change your answer as many times as you want. Who would like to go first? Give it John. I think he needs it. Okay. I think I won last time, so it is me. In this film, Benedict Cumberbatch plays the sweetly named Henry Sugar. In what film did he play the heir to a chocolate fortune? A. Warhorse. B. The Electrical Life of Lewis Wayne. C. Zoolander 2. Or D. Atonement. Such a ridiculous question. I'm going to say Zoolander 2. Thank you for complimenting me on my quiz skills. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the answer of that. James? Um, I, I'm going to go Atonement. James is correct. It is Atonement. Yeah, that that was a split between Atonement or Warhorse, but yeah. Yes, he plays essentially the British, like a Cadbury, if that's a family. <laughs> Cadbury is a family, yes. In Atonement, yes. So he's kind of a stand-in for that in Atonement. All right. The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar is part of an anthology of seven Roald Dahl stories. Which of these stories is not part of that anthology? Oh. A, Danny, Champion of the World. B, the boy who talked with animals, C, a piece of cake, or D, the hitchhiker, James? Um, I think the hitchhiker's one, and the first one is, so it's between two and three. Can you say them again, for, the second and third one again for me, please? The boy who talked with animals and a piece of cake. I'm gonna go a piece of cake. And John's gonna John. know this. Danny, the champion of the world. The answer is Danny, champion really? of the world. Yes. It is a Raw Doll story, but it is in a different group. Right. I got confused. All right. We're tied up. In the film, Henry Sugar successfully hits on 19 at Blackjack. What is the percentage likelihood of busting if you hit on 19? 80, 85, 90, or 95%? In an eight deck shoe. I don't. In a standard shoe. Yeah, so an eight-deck shoe. 95. James? Um, I'm going to go tactics here because I'm not sure, so I'm just going to go 95 as well because John's pretty, pretty good. The answer is 85%. Any ace, any deuce. Or uh, saves you. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Yeah, I should have talked about that a bit more. Yeah, you should have, John. All right, still tied. Bill Murray is a frequent collaborator with Wes Anderson, but does not appear in The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. He was, however, a voice in Wes Anderson's other Roald Dahl adaptation, The Fantastic Mr. Fox. What type of animal did he voice? A. Fox, B. Rat, C. Bear, or D. Badger? James. Not a fox, because that's Clooney, I believe. I feel... Maury could very well be a bear. We're going with bear? Was that even an option? Bear was an option, yes. C was bear. Yeah, yeah, bear. Bear, bear, bear. We'll go bear. John's won it. Fantastic. Mint badger. He is a badger. Correct. All right. Last chance to catch up and tie. 
Wes Anderson is considered one of the best writer-directors working today, but he has never won an Academy Award. How many times has he been nominated? Two, five, seven, or ten? Five. Complete guess. I was going to say five, but I think actually it might be more. So I'm going to go seven. We have a tie on our hands because the answer is seven. Yeah! All right, here is the tiebreaker. Closest guess wins. Won't even be without going over, just closest. How many Roald Dahl books are there? Oh, wow. Uh, John, you can go first. No, you're all right. No, it's fine. You're leading. You go first. Um, yeah, but this is going to take me a time to work it out. She'll just do you a, a 10 second countdown. I just, I'm going to count to three and make you both say a number. Oh, that's a nice way of doing it. All right. One, two, three. 27. 18. 71. John oh. is our winner. <laughs> 71. 71. That is a body of work. 18. I mean, I could name more than 18. Well, I was just counting the children's ones. I don't know anything else out of that. Yep, we've got 71, 71. All right, it's your turn to pick which side of the coin we're going with to choose between the regulatory-connected pinball that John has put forth and a nice suggestion from, from viewers and listeners, rather, uh, of let it ride. So which is going to be heads and which is going to be tails? Let it ride can be heads. We are going to be watching Let It Ride. Excellent. All right. I don't think I know that film. Neither do I. None of us have watched it. We're going to give James some time to figure out what this movie even is. So you have some time to watch Let It Ride and check us out for the next episode of Cinema Reels, where we talk about which gambling film is better or worse than the wonderful story of Henry Sugar. Everything's better.